Chapter Twenty Five of How to Succeed or Stepping Stones to Fame and Fortune. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How to Succeed or Stepping Stones to Fame and Fortune by Orison Sweat Marden. Chapter Twenty Five. RICHES WITHOUT WINGS Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 Abundance consists not alone in material possession, but in an uncovetous spirit. Selden Less coin, less care. To know how to dispense with wealth is to possess it. Reynolds. Rich, from the very want of wealth, is heaven's best treasures, peace and health. Gray. Money never made a man happy yet. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Franklin. There are treasures laid up in the heart, treasures of charity, piety, temperance, and soberness. These treasures a man takes with him beyond death when he leaves this world. Buddhist Scriptures It is better to get wisdom than gold, for wisdom is better than rubies, and all things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Better a cheap coffin and a plain funeral after a useful, unselfish life than a grand mausoleum after a loveless, selfish life. I ought not to allow any man, because he has broad lands, to feel that he is rich in my presence. I ought to make him feel that I can do without his riches, that I cannot be bought neither by comfort, neither by pride. And although I be utterly penniless, and receiving bread from him, that he is the poor man beside me. Emerson I don't want such things, said Epictetus to the rich Roman orator who was making light of his contempt for money wealth. And besides, said the Stoic, you are poorer than I am, after all. You have silver vessels, but earthenware reasons, principles, appetites. My mind to me a kingdom is, and it furnishes me with abundant and happy occupation in lieu of your restless idleness. All your possessions seem small to you, mine seem great to me. Your desire is insatiate, Mine is satisfied. Lord, how many things are in the world of which Diogenes hath no need, exclaimed the Stoic, as he wandered among the miscellaneous articles at a country fair. One would think, said Boswell, that the proprietor of all this, Kettlestone, the seat of Lord Scarsfield, must be happy. Nay, sir, said Johnson, all this excludes but one evil, poverty. 
What property has he left behind him? People ask when a man dies. But the angel who receives him asks, What good deeds hast thou sent before thee? What is the best thing to possess? asked an ancient philosopher of his pupils. One answered, Nothing is better than a good eye, a figurative expression for a liberal and contented disposition. Another said, A good companion is the best thing in the world. A third chose a good neighbor, and a fourth a wise friend. But Eleazar said, A good heart is better than them all. True, said the master, thou hast comprehended in two words all that the rest have said, for he that hath a good heart will be contented, a good companion, a good neighbor, and will easily see what is fit to be done by him. My kingdom for a horse, said Richard III of England, amid the press of Bosworth Field. My kingdom for a moment, said Queen Elizabeth on her deathbed, and millions of others when they have felt earth, its riches and power slipping from their grasp, have shown plainly that deep down in their hearts they value such things as naught, when really compared with the blessed light of life, the stars and flowers, the companionship of friends, and far above all else, the opportunity of growth and development here, and the preparation for future life. Queen Caroline Matilda of Denmark wrote on the window of her prison, with her diamond ring, Oh, keep me innocent, make others great. These are my jewels, said Cornelia to the Campanian lady who asked to see her gems, and she pointed with pride to her boys returning from school. The reply was worthy the daughter of Scipio Africanus and wife of Tiberius Gracchus. The most valuable production of any country is its crop of men. I will take away thy treasures, said a tyrant to a philosopher. Nay, that thou canst not, was the retort, for, in the first place, I have none that thou knowest of. My treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. Some people are born happy. No matter what their circumstances are, they are joyous, content, and satisfied with everything. They carry a perpetual holiday in their eye and see joy and beauty everywhere. When we meet them, they impress us as just having met with some good luck, or that they have some good news to tell you. Like the bees that extract honey from every flower, they have a happy alchemy which transmutes even gloom into sunshine. In the sick-room they are better than the physician, and more potent than drugs. All doors open to these people. They are welcome everywhere. We make our own worlds, and people them, while memory, the scribe, faithfully registers the account of each as we pass the milestones dotting the way. Are we not, then, responsible for the inhabitants of our little worlds? We should fill them with the true, the beautiful, and the good, since we are endowed with the faculty of creating. Genius, says Whipple, 
may almost be defined as the faculty of acquiring poverty. It is the men of talent who make money out of the work of the men of genius. Somebody has truly said that the greatest works have brought the least benefit to their authors. They were beyond the reach of appreciation before appreciation came. There is an Eastern legend of a powerful genius who promised a beautiful maiden a gift of rare value if she would pass through a field of corn and, without pausing, going backward or wandering hither and thither, select the largest and ripest ear. The value of the gift to be in proportion to the size and perfection of the ear she should choose. She passed through the field seeing a great many well worth gathering, but always hoping to find a larger and more perfect one, she passed them all by, when, coming to a part of the field where the stalks grew more stunted, she disdained to take one from these, and so came through to the other side without having selected any. A man may make millions and be a failure still, Money-making is not the highest success. The life of a well-known millionaire was not truly successful. He had but one ambition. He coined his very soul into dollars. The almighty dollar was his son, and was mirrored in his heart. He strangled all other emotions, and hushed and stifled all nobler aspirations, he grasped his riches tightly till stricken by the scythe of death, when, in the twinkling of an eye, he was transformed from one of the richest men who ever lived in this world to one of the poorest souls that ever went out of it. Lincoln always yearned for a rounded wholeness of character, and his fellow lawyers called him, quote, perversely honest, unquote. Nothing could induce him to take the wrong side of a case, or to continue on that side after learning that it was unjust or hopeless. After giving considerable time to a case in which he had received from a lady a retainer of two hundred dollars, he returned the money, saying, Madam, you have not a peg to hang your case on. But you have earned that money, said the lady. No, no, replied Lincoln. That would not be right. I can't take pay for doing my duty. Agassiz would not lecture at five hundred dollars a night, because he had no time to make money. Charles Sumner, when a senator, declined to lecture at any price, saying that his time belonged to Massachusetts and the nation. Spurgeon would not speak for fifty nights in America at one thousand dollars a night, because he said he could do better. He could stay in London and try to save fifty souls. All honor to the comparative few in every walk of life, who, amid the strong materialistic tendencies of our age, still speak and act earnestly, inspired by the hope of rewards other than gold or popular favor. These are our truly great men and women. They labor in their ordinary vocations with no less zeal because they give time and thought to higher things. King Midas, in the ancient myth, asked that everything he touched might be turned to gold, 
for then he thought he would be perfectly happy. His request was granted, but when his clothes, his food, his drink, the flowers he plucked, and even his little daughter whom he kissed, were all changed into yellow metal, he begged that the golden touch might be taken from him. He had learned that many other things are intrinsically far more valuable than all the gold that was ever dug from the earth. The beggarly Homer, who strolled God knows when, in the infancy and barbarism of the world, was richer far than Croesus, and added more wealth to the world than the Rothschilds, the Vanderbilts, and Goulds. An Arab, who fortunately escaped death after losing his way in the desert, without provisions, tells of his feelings when he found a bag full of pearls, just as he was about to abandon all hope. "'I shall never forget,' said he, "'the relish and delight that I felt on supposing it to be dried wheat, nor the bitterness and despair I suffered on discovering that the bag contained pearls.' It is an interesting fact in this money-getting era that a poor author, or a seedy artist, or a college president with frayed coat-sleeves has more standing in society and has more paragraphs written about him in the papers than many a millionaire. This is due, perhaps, to the malign influence of money-getting and to the benign effect of purely intellectual pursuits. As a rule, every great success in the money world means the failure and misery of hundreds of antagonists. Every success in the world of intellect and character is an aid and profit to society. Character is a mark cut upon something, and this indelible mark determines the only true value of all people and all their work. Dr. Hunter said, no man was ever a great man who wanted to be one. Artists cannot help putting themselves and their own characters into their works. The vulgar artists cannot paint a virtuous picture. The gross, the bizarre, the sensitive, the delicate, all come out on the canvas and tell the story of his life. Who would not choose to be a millionaire of deeds, with a Lincoln, a Grant, a Florence Nightingale, a Childs? A millionaire of ideas, with Emerson, with Lowell, with Shakespeare, with Wordsworth? A millionaire of statesmanship, with a Gladstone, a Bright, a Sumner, a Washington? Some men are rich in health, a constant cheerfulness, in a mercurial temperament which floats them over troubles and trials enough to sink a shipload of ordinary men. Others are rich in disposition, family, and friends. There are some men so amiable that everybody loves them, some so cheerful that they carry an atmosphere of jollity about them. Some are rich in integrity and character. Who is the richest of men? asked Socrates. He who is content with the least, for contentment is nature's riches. Do you know, sir, said a devotee of Mammon to John Bright, that I am worth a million sterling? 
"'Yes,' said the irritated but calm-spirited respondent. "'I do, and I know that it is all you are worth.' A bankrupt merchant, returning home one night, said to his noble wife, "'My dear, I am ruined. Everything we have is in the hands of the sheriff.' After a few moments of silence, the wife looked into his face and asked, Will the sheriff sell you? Oh, no. Will the sheriff sell me? Oh, no. Then do not say we have lost everything. All that is most valuable remains to us. Manhood, womanhood, childhood. We have lost but the results of our skill and industry. We can make another fortune if our hearts and hands are left us. We say a man is made, said Beecher. What do we mean? That he has got the control of his lower instincts, so that they are only fuel to his higher feelings, giving force to his nature? That his affectations are like vines, sending out all sides blossoms and clustering fruits? That his tastes are so cultivated that all beautiful things speak to him and bring him their delights? that his understanding is opened, so that he walks through every hall of knowledge and gathers its treasures, that his moral feelings are so developed and quickened that he holds sweet commerce with heaven? Oh, no, none of these things. He is cold and dead in heart and mind and soul. Only his passions are alive. But... He is worth five hundred thousand dollars. And we say a man is ruined. Are his wife and children dead? Oh, no. Have they had a quarrel? And are they separated from him? Oh, no. Has he lost his reputation through crime? No. Is his reason gone? Oh, no, it is as sound as ever. Is he struck through with disease? No. He has lost his property, and he is ruined. The man ruined. When shall we learn that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth? How is it possible, asks an ancient philosopher, that a man who has nothing, who is naked, houseless, without a hearth, squalid, without a slave, without a city, can pass a life that flows easily. See, God has sent you a man to show you that it is possible. Look at me, who am without a city, without a house, without possessions, without a slave. I sleep on the ground. I have no wife, no children, no praetorium but only the earth and heavens, and one poor cloak. And what do I want? Am I not without sorrow? Am I not without fear? Am I not free? When did any of you see me failing in the object of my desire, or even falling into that which I would avoid? Did I ever blame God or man? Did I ever accuse any man? Did any of you ever see me with a sorrowful countenance? 
"'You are a plebeian,' said a patrician to Cicero. "'I am a plebeian,' replied the great Roman orator. "'The nobility of my family begins with me. "'That of yours will end with you.' "'No man deserves to be crowned with honor whose life is a failure. "'And he who lives only to eat and drink and accumulate money "'is surely not successful.' The world is no better for his living in it. He never wiped a tear from a sad face, never kindled a fire upon a frozen hearth. There is no flesh in his heart. He worships no god but gold. Why should I scramble and struggle to get possession of a little portion of this earth? This is my world now. Why should I envy others its mere legal possession? It belongs to him who can see it, enjoy it. I need not envy the so-called owners of estates in Boston and New York. They are merely taking care of my property and keeping it in excellent condition for me. For a few pennies for railroad fare whenever I wish, I can see and possess the best of it all. It has cost me no effort, it gives me no care. Yet the green grass, the shrubbery, and the statues on the lawns, the finer sculptures and paintings within, are always ready for me whenever I feel a desire to look upon them. I do not wish to carry them home with me, for I could not give them half the care they now receive. Besides, it would take too much of my valuable time, and I should be worrying continually lest they be spoiled or stolen. I have much of the wealth of the world now. It is all prepared for me without any pains on my part. All around me are working hard to get things that will please me, and competing to see who can give them the cheapest. The little I pay for the use of libraries, railroads, galleries, parks, is less than it would cost me to care for the least of all I use. Life and landscape are mine the stars and flowers, the sea and air, the birds and trees. What more do I want? All the ages have been working for me. All mankind are my servants. I am only required to feed and clothe myself, an easy task in this land of opportunity. There is scarcely an idea more infectious or potent than the love of money. It is a yellow fever, decimating its votaries, and ruining more families in the land than all the plagues or diseases put together. Instances of its malevolent power occur to every reader. Almost every square foot of land of our continent, during the early buccaneer period, some call it the march of civilization, has been ensanguined through the madness for treasure. Read the pages of our historian Prescott, and you will see that the whole anti-Puritan history of America resolves itself into an awful slaughter for gold. Discoveries were only side issues. Speak, history, who are life's victors. Unroll thy long scroll and say, have they one who first reached the goal, heedless of a brother's rights? 
And has he lost, in life's great race, Who stopped to raise a fallen child And place him on his feet again, Or to give a fainting comrade care, Or to guide or assist a feeble woman? Has he lost, who halts before the throne When duty calls, or sorrow, or distress? Is there no one to sing the paean of the conquered who fell in the battle of life, of the wounded, the beaten, who died overwhelmed in the strife, of the low and humble, the weary and broken-hearted, who strove and who failed in the eyes of men, but who did their duty as God gave them to see it? We have yet no man who has leaned entirely on his character and eaten angels' food, said Emerson, who, trusting to his sentiments, found life made of miracles, who, working for universal aims, found himself fed, he knew not how, clothed, sheltered, and weaponed, he knew not how, and yet it was done by his own hands. At a time when it was considered dangerous to society in Europe for the common people to read books and listen to lectures on any but religious subjects, Charles Knight determined to enlighten the masses by cheap literature. He believed that a paper might be instructive and not be dull, cheap without being wicked. He started The Penny Magazine, which acquired a circulation of two hundred thousand the first year. Knight projected the Penny Cyclopedia and the Library of Entertaining Knowledge, half-hours with the best authors, and other useful works at a low price. His whole adult life was spent in the work of elevating the common people by cheap yet wholesome publications. He died in poverty, but grateful people have erected a noble monument over his ashes. How many rich dwellings there are, crowded with every appointment of luxury, that are only glittering caverns of selfishness and discontent. Better a dinner of herbs where love is, than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. No man can tell whether he is rich or poor by turning to his ledger, says Beecher. It is the heart that makes a man rich. He is rich or poor according to what he is, not according to what he has. If our thoughts are great and noble, no mean surroundings can make us miserable. It is the mind that makes the body rich. However it be, it seems to me, tis only noble to be good. Kind hearts are more than coronets, and simple faith than Norman blood. Tennyson Be noble, and the nobleness that lies in other men, sleeping but never dead, will rise in majesty to meet thine own. Lowell End of chapter 25 Recording by David Martin End of How to Succeed, or Stepping Stones to Fame and Fortune
by Orison Sweat Marden.